electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. Today, a landmark new law in Europe and what it means for your iPhone, why big tech is sweating over this regulation from the EU. Then take your teeth out of the fang and sink them into a mango. The street's latest acronym is all about chip opportunity. And later, Binge is back with the showrunner of Super Pumped. And we're live from the red carpet ahead of the Oscars, Carl. Uh, big weekend ahead, D. Our feed, though, is going to start this morning with that agreement on the EU's Digital Markets Act. Those rules set to take effect as early as October and will likely force Apple's iMessaging and Meta's WhatsApp to become interoperable with smaller platforms. A potential peek inside that walled garden, so to speak. Our friend Neelay Patel went off on this on Twitter today, saying tech companies should have seen this coming a decade ago. Of course, Neelay, the editor-in-chief of The Verge, joins us this morning to kick off the hour. We said in the prior intro, Neelay, that the big tech was sweating this. Are they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they're going to do what they can to walk back certain provisions as the language gets negotiated between now and October. There's a furious lobbying effort already underway, and I think they're going to come up with some solutions and see if they can fit them into some loopholes. That's pretty normal. At the end of the road, though, you see the European Union saying these markets need to be more competitive. And they are very forceful at that. Executive Director Vestager was on Decoder last week. She was saying, look, the biggest tool I have here is increased fines and the potential for behavioral remedies, breakups and the like, if they don't comply. That's what the real focus is. I think the tech companies need to sweat that because they're going to run into remedies with some real teeth. Not right now, Apple not in compliance with the Dutch uh, antitrust ruling, just paying 5 million euros a week because it's easier than than compliance. That's all going to go away. I think that's going to be the real problem. Yeah, that, that was sort of the read uh, by some earlier this morning that maybe this is just sort of rev- a revenue generator for the EU. And But she's talked increasingly, uh, Vestier, about moving from just fines to remedies over time and that there'll be a mind meld between EU policy and U.S. policy. Yeah, for sure. I think you see that the policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic have been talking a lot. Obviously, the Biden administration has appointed some key figures with very similar ideas. If you just take a step back historically, EU antitrust policy and American antitrust policy are a pretty interesting A-B test, right? The EU looks a lot like pre-80s American antitrust policy, and we changed course. Now that might be conforming again, which would be very interesting. And more importantly... These companies can't run business. They can't run 10 different business models around the world. They're going to have to find one that works for the strictest regulatory environment they're in. And I think American policymakers can kind of draft off that. Neil, I'm not convinced. Uh, it's easy to say things like interoperability and uh, Europe's going to say they have to. But it's harder to say how that's actually going to work. 
How do you make iMessage and WhatsApp app interoperable when they have different standards to what even Apple's keeping on its servers and, and what's encrypted? I don't think you can practically do it. And hey, couldn't people argue that uh, these things are interoperable by your mobile phone number anyway? Does the EU want to regulate what color an Android user's messages are on my phone? No, no green. It has to be blue. I think if the EU could regulate the color of messages, they absolutely would. That's what makes them the EU. I think underneath that, though, is a series of questions about what specifically they mean about interoperability. Right? SMS is interoperable, but it's not encrypted. It doesn't support all the features of modern messaging platforms. The carriers and tech companies have been slow to adopt the next generation of messaging protocols. If this just forces that to go faster, that might be enough. But the tech companies have had no incentive to do this because messaging is locked into their platforms. And fundamentally, what the EU wants is more open competition and lower switching costs for consumers. So how it gets implemented, I think we're going to hear a lot of very smart people with a lot of resources say things are too hard. Mm -hmm. I don't buy that things are too hard for the smartest people at the richest companies. <laughs> yeah, they can they can find a way to make those bubbles the same color. Uh, Nile, once again, European regulators, they're leading the way here while Washington essentially just talks, sits on its hands. Um, and the consequences this time are, you know, beyond what we've previously called speeding tickets, right? There's real consequences here. Whether they get litigated, uh, we don't know. But do you think that this sort of lights a fire for Washington to do more? Do you think that the threat is going to shift from Europe in a more substantial way than it has in the past for the tech companies? Yeah, you know, uh, American politics are constantly distracted by a million things, but the antitrust bills that we have seen proposed are moving slowly along. One interesting uh, dynamic here is that the United States government, in some ways, was opposed to the Digital Markets Act in Europe, right? They said, we're going to regulate our companies, not you. And then they got left behind. So I think there's going to be some race to figure out what the American response is now, because the pressure is certainly here and will obviously increase in October. Uh, finally, Neelay, I wonder, I mean, we're talking about regulation as if the world hadn't changed a month ago uh, with Ukraine and thrown the economy and, and commodity shocks into all of our laps. Uh, do you think that uh, there's any way U.S. policy is adjusted by the fact that we need our giants now more than ever? Yeah, I think that's uh, a real consideration, right, that the sort of is globalization over conversation has certainly been ramped up by the war in Ukraine, by the increasing hostile postures of various countries, including China, and having big national champions in charge of telecommunication services that want to protect things like the United States First Amendment are, I mean, that's a huge tool for the United States foreign policy establishment. Are those companies actually going to be used as those tools? I think remains an open question. Our carriers have done that. AT&T and Verizon have traditionally been part of that conversation. The information services like Facebook, Twitter, what have you, have kind of not. So I think this is a big moment of reckoning for them, how much they want to be embedded in American foreign policy versus being large state-like companies unto themselves. I'm not sure they've reckoned with that yet. Yeah, that's, that's a difficult choice. Uh, Neelay, really good conversation, and there's a lot more to come on that front. See you soon. Neelay Patel. Yeah. I'm a little Regulators. wary of... I'm a little wary of, of using the term leadership when it comes to regulation. I'm not sure what that means. Like, do we want to lead or do we want effective? Let's see. Well, let's stick with Apple and also a possible hardware subscription service. According to a new report, Bank of America, Apple analyst Wamsi Mohan with us now to break down what that could mean for the bottom line. 
Wamsi, um, a hardware subscription service in a way isn't new. I mean, the iPhone upgrade program is really old. There's been installment plans online from Apple on all kinds of hardware for a long time. So what is this really about? Is it about getting people to upgrade more frequently to more premium items with less friction, not using the Apple card? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I think that that's, that's precisely the point. I think when you look at Apple, the most important thing for them from a hardware perspective is to ensure that they keep a very stable and growing install base. And to ensure that they can keep that install base upgrading at a certain rate. I mean, we already have about a billion iPhones in the install base. People are upgrading roughly every four years on average. Uh, and the intent is to make that upgrade just more reliable, just make it like more frequent. And, and you're right, uh, they've had the iPhone upgrade program in the US, um, but most people are still choosing to use carrier installment plans in many ways. Apple's doing some things to try to decouple uh, from carriers by using eSIMs and things like that. I think more applicable globally, this is still not true. We don't have people buying on installment basis on a global basis. And so it does take away the friction. It increases the upgrade rate. And that has been an issue over the last decade. If you see the upgrade rates have stretched out, uh, people suspect that it came in a little bit through the course of the pandemic. We right. don't think it mattered by a whole lot. But but at this point in time, that's that's really the key focus. And that would be something appealing from an Apple perspective where but you can make how, sure that people upgrade very frequently. How does Apple do it? My sense is the reason why the carrier programs work is they've got that wireless right bill to deal with, to leverage, where you're sort of paying for that anyway. So in what ways are you paying for hardware as a part of it? And they can push you to upgrade to 5G and family plans and get a, a bigger kind of share of wallet. Does Apple have to incorporate some technology services, cloud services that people are paying for from another provider into this uh, hardware subscription service in order for it to make sense? Well, I think that Apple's going to tread this very in a very fine way, right? I mean, the carriers still remain an extremely important distribution partner for Apple. So from that perspective, we think that Apple is going to make sure that the carriers still have access to upgrading with customers and, and leveraging all the carrier subsidies, which are ultimately very important to Apple as well. So in areas where you don't have those carrier subsidies, I think those are the areas more internationally where you're going to see maybe an upgrade plan kick in, and, and truly they could bundle this with a whole bunch of host of other things as well. Uh, whether that be financed by Apple Card or not, and the rollout of that more globally remains to be seen. But, but I think the, the important part from an Apple perspective is that ultimately it's not just hardware, but really everything that they offer can be offered as a subscription. They want people to stay in that ecosystem and make it even more stronger. So, uh, it, you know, you could make the same argument for beyond iPhone into iPads. You could make it for Macs. You can make it for watches. You can make it for every device that they sell that, that you do want to upgrade to the greatest and latest at some yeah. frequency. And actually, it's interesting. Apple has published an eco uh, report where you talk about replacement cycles for these devices, right? So they have an assumption around the replacement cycle of these and and i think that they have a very good view into that install base and so the more frequently you can get people to do this i think uh by bundling maybe maybe, maybe some other services as well but more broadly the entire portfolio over time i think that makes a lot of sense for them 
Wamzi, will this help Apple sell devices in emerging markets? Uh, even the SE we've talked about in the past has been most popular in places like Western Europe and the U.S. So what does does it help that proposition internationally where you see lower cost phones gaining more market share? Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, it's, it's all about lowering that friction and the initial purchase price, right? Like you've seen the willingness, at least here in the U.S., from a consumer standpoint, to really move up in terms of the, the available SKUs. The pros and the pro maxes have become so much more popular than maybe three or four generations ago where uh, the high-end phones were maybe at $1,000. Now you've got $1,250, $1,400 phones. And so that's coming because consumers look at it as a purchase that's amortized over a three-year period. And the ability to do that in international markets is is, is very important. Uh, price point has always been an issue over there. And I think that this really opens up the TAM more broadly to people who might be considering to switch from an Android to, to an iOS ecosystem. Hey, finally, Wamzi, I wonder, are you expecting uh, big surprises on uh, capital return basis or balance sheet moves uh, in the spring quarter? Yeah, this is traditionally the time uh, when Apple does, um, you know, re-up its its buyback program, which has been very, very effective. I mean, it's a high-quality problem to have when you generate $70, $80 billion in free cash flow return, the entire thing, and your your net cash balance still barely goes down. And so I think you're, you're, you should be expecting, again, a re-up of the capital return program somewhere in that $70-ish billion range. And I think that that will continue for the foreseeable future, given just sort of the cash machine that Apple is. All right. Wamsi Mohan, thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, too. And coming up on the show, goodbye, Fang and hello, Mango. We will explain the street's latest buzzy acronym next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Gut check on semis and another massive speed bump for the chip industry. CNBC reporting the sector is under threat with neon supply set to fall off a cliff following the invasion of Ukraine. More than half of the world's production comes from that country, but now those producers are shuttering operations. Neon is a critical part of the chip manufacturing process, powering the lasers that carve patterns into silicon. Names like Samsung, Intel, Taiwan Semi, those are all impacted. So add that to the, quote, wall of worries Bank of America has on semi reiterating low investor conviction in the space, but high strategic value, specifically with Mango. That is right, guys. We have a new acronym in the spirit of FANG. That's Marvell Tech, Broadcom, Analog Devices, AMD, NVIDIA, Global Foundries, and On Semiconductor. Or these are the seven stocks they say are best positioned to recover from this global shortage. So could it be the time to dip back into chips? Well, the SOX Semiconductor ETF is down double digits since the start of the year. Guys, another acronym. I don't know if this is going to stick, but John, there's no I in Mango. Intel's not on this list. Can I be short uh, acronyms? Is that allowed? I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, I don't, you know, we don't trade individual stocks. But these, the acronyms just become too much. Remember how Microsoft wasn't in FANG, right? 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, some of these stocks, I think, and I understand what they're saying. They like all of these semiconductor stocks at B of A for different reasons, but they have very different theses. So I don't know. But then back on the neon thing, important to note here, uh, a lot of foundry producers have two to three months worth of neon stored up. And this is actually sort of good for China, Carl, because uh, they are another major producer of neon, I think producing around 30 percent. Uh, of the world's neon and their share is expected to rise out of, uh, after the supply out of uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, is not what it used to be. So it's not as if there will be no neon available. Yeah, uh, at least half of the global supply comes out of there. And Micron, at least, has said in recent weeks that they're okay for now, but it's certainly something the industry's watching. Meantime, our next guest highlights some investor interest in semis, saying that inflows into semi ETFs have actually increased from 2% to over 20 in just the last three years. She runs the Triple Q Index and is Invesco's global head of ETFs. Adapaglia joins us this morning. Pretty fascinating, Anna. And I guess it kind of fits with the notion that there are going to be more chips in virtually every everything we use. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I usually I usually say, if uh, you want to know what investor sentiment is, uh, look at ETFs flow, look at where investors put their money, because the ETF industry is really a very good proxy that shows uh, where investors believe the growth is going to be. And semis are a good indication of that, because uh, in 2019, uh, semis uh, were only 3.2% of tech AUM in the ETF industry. And if you fast forward that uh, to the COVID, to the pandemic age, uh, and uh, uh, fast forward that by two years, uh, you said that uh, ETFs, uh, uh, semis uh, exposure in ETFs uh, captured 21% of the flows. And this is very intuitive because people have been working from home. They have been making more and more use of these technologies. And it draws yep. distinctions between hardware and software. And there is no going back to that. So this will continue to grow. And we are really bullish about it, despite recent news about uh, the sector. Do you think it's odd to see these kinds of flows, uh, given the rate environment that we're now entering on a day where the 10-year hits 2.5? That's a good question. I don't think I don't think it's unusual. I get this question all the time because uh, if you connect the dots, uh, rates are higher, which means borrowing costs are higher, which means the economies may take a break and the companies may stop may stop growing. However, if this may be true for some segments of the market, it's not really true for tech companies in general, because tech companies, they tend to show a strong cash flow generation potential, which means even if borrowing costs are higher, they will continue to grow, they will continue to reinvest in the business. But you know, don't trust me just because I say that. We have watched this move <laughs> before. So uh, let, let's look back at what happened during the last cycle of Fed rate hiking. And I'm talking about the window between December 2015 and July 2019. The QQQ outperformed the S&P by 19%. And uh, if you look at our fund RYT, which is the S&P 500 equal weight technology ETF, that outperformed the S&P 500 by 46.5%. Right. I want to say it again, 46%. I don't want this to be lost in translation given my thick accent. That's the story. So the I do believe, so, yeah, and I do believe that tech companies will continue to grow despite being in an interest rate hike environment. The 
semiconductor industry and the stocks are in a very different place than they were a generation ago. I mean, it used to be Intel was the big player market cap wise. Now it's clearly NVIDIA. And there's also this dynamic of the hyperscale cloud providers uh, being a big presence in this market and a question of how a lot of these chip players are going to respond to customization, um, whether it's it's on the, the foundry side or on the design side. Uh, so how should investors think about that new dynamic or those new dynamics, uh, whether they're trading ETFs or thinking individually about these semiconductor stocks? So they, they, uh, I, I would tell investors that the best, the best advice is always uh, try to diversify your portfolios. Uh, and in trying to diversify your portfolio with the ETFs, uh, you have a lot of optionality because you can go from the QQQ, which are 50% exposure to technology and the really big names into the fund, to other components and other flavors of the NASDAQ listed securities. Like uh, uh, we have a next generation of QQQ, so to speak, that includes small cap companies with high growth potential. And there are other ETFs that provide different exposures to semiconductors, to uh, different segments of the market. So you can be overweight in the big names in your portfolio, which is absolutely fine, but try to diversify with all the options that the ETF market offers nowadays. And there is what, a plenty of options. To what degree do investors need to also keep their eye on commodities? We were just uh, talking also about supply of things like neon and how geopolitical uh, complexities are affecting them and might affect the entire semiconductor sure. market. Sure. So the good news here is that uh, there is exposure through commodities in the ETF space. Uh, we have seen that really materialize in the flows for our commodity lineup because commodities are now being used by investors as a hedging tool. Uh, geopolitical crisis, humanitarian crisis, they all lead to a diversification of flows and diversification of your portfolio component into commodities. We have seen that. We have seen incredibly healthy flows in our DBA, which is the agricultural commodity pool. We have seen very healthy flows in our PDBC, Diversified Optimum Commodity Pool. And it is something that should be part of a healthy portfolio, given the current market conditions. Pretty fascinating. And these, how these new ideas get incorporated into, uh, into different ETFs. Anna, thank you. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much. We'll see thank you next Thank you for time. having me. Thank you. Now, after a rough start to the year, the NASDAQ is up double digits in the last 10 days. A breakdown of the names you might have missed out on. You didn't buy it below. Next, stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa and Carl Quintanilla and... Julia Borston, who's live from the red carpet ahead of the Oscars this weekend. We'll have more on that later this hour. Markets are lower. The Dow and S&P off fractionally. The Nasdaq off more than 1% after yesterday's strong rally. Some beaten down stocks are the top gainers in the Nasdaq this week. We'll have that story in a moment. But first, let's get to a news update with the one and only Rahel Solomon. Rahel. John, thank you. Here's what's happening at this hour. Spending home sales sank more than 4% in February. Economists have predicted a 1% rise. 
Pending sales are now down four months in a row as mortgage rates continue to rise. Another prediction that the Federal Reserve will hike interest rates quickly. City says that it expects four consecutive 50 basis point rate hikes and says that the Fed will raise increased rates a total of 275 basis points this year. Earlier today, Bank of America said that it expects 50 basis point hikes at the June and July Fed meetings. Shares of Huntsman now down 10 percent. The stock cratered after a campaign by activist shareholder Starboard failed to put any of its candidates on the board of Huntsman. And marijuana stocks continuing their rise this morning. Many surged yesterday afternoon. That was following reports that the House of Representatives plans to vote next week on legalizing cannabis at the federal level. This will be the second attempt to enact the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. It'd be big news. John, I'll send it back to you. Well, thanks. Growth stocks took a beating this year, but a few key names have seen big rebounds off of their lows in March. Dom Chu joins us now with the names you might have missed on the way up. Dom? All right. Some of them you may not have missed because they are drivers of that move that we've seen in the NASDAQ. But if you take a look at the NASDAQ trade overall, the biggest ones out there, the NASDAQ 100, as measured by the Invesco QQQ Trust, which tracks that NASDAQ 100 trade, the biggest stocks within there, has seen a rise off the lows over the last couple of weeks, up by roughly 12%. Now, what that does is put the overall NASDAQ 100 just about 12 or 13 percent below the record highs that we've seen over the course of the last year. So it's been a market move with regard to what's been driving some of the action. The best performers within that Nasdaq 100 trade in just the last week or so really helping to propel things are a couple of mega cap names in Tesla and Intel. Tesla's up 10 and percent over that one week span. Intel's up 8 percent. And then we'll put Splunk in there as well, up about nine and a half percent. These three stocks are the biggest gainers in that Nasdaq 100 over the last week. But it's not just those names. The biggest company of them all is the one that is really one to watch here. Apple, not so under the radar, but that stock, it's down fractionally today. But over the last week, it's up nearly 6%. It's been a steady climb higher as people have kind of bought the dip within that technology trade. Whether that continues or not is going to be remain to be seen here. But three of the names that maybe have and have not garnered as much investor attention Uh, on these bounces in particular are tied to either insider or related insider buying trends. We are looking at DocuSign, Bumble and GameStop. Now, if you take a look at the moves that we've seen off the lows here, DocuSign, believe it or not, just in the last couple of weeks here is up roughly 40 percent from the lows that we've seen. Bumble, by the way, is up roughly 80 percent during that same time span. And GameStop has doubled in just the last 10 trading days. Again, much of this is tied in some way to insider buying activity or related to insider buying activity as well. And then just one other one to watch, the ARK Innovation ETF. It's been beleaguered. We know over the last year it's lost a lot of its value, but the bounce that you're seeing over here has been roughly 24%. So as we talk a little bit, Carl, about the moves that we've seen, many of those growth names that took the biggest beatings were the ones that people were trying to find some deep value trades in. We'll see whether that trend continues, if this market can keep its upside momentum. Carl, back over to you. Yeah, we definitely lost some ground this morning, right as the 10-year hit 2.5, Dom. Thanks, uh, Dom Chu. Meantime, uh, Uber shares more than 40% off the high. Our next guest says disruptions ahead, so better buy now. We'll discuss it. Don't go away.
If you're looking for some ideas within tech, our next guest is here with three ideas. Joining us now with why he's bullish on these names, Newberger Berman Portfolio Manager Jason Tauber. Uh, Jason, let's tackle the first name first, which you say is Uber. What is the disruption here? Instead of autonomous driving, we've got yellow taxis, uh, continued losses. Is this a company that's really disrupting or is it sort of settling into its status as maybe a taxi and delivery company? Uh, it's a great question, Deirdre. Uh, good to see you all. Um, you know, I would say that um, the, the big opportunity in Uber is that this company went public way too early, right? Um, the stock has actually underperformed the S&P 500 by 90 percentage points uh, um, since their IPO. Uh, you know, when, when the company first went public, they were bleeding cash. Um, the competitive environment was completely unsettled. The, the, the Eats business faced a lot of competition. Um, fast forward to today, they've really rationalized the portfolio. They've divested businesses where they are not share leaders. And now 90% of their rides business is in markets where they are number one. Uh, the Eats business has turned the corner and is, is profitable. The business structure oh. overall is, Jason, is more attractive. hold on yeah. a second. A few things that you said. You said that this is a company that went public too early. This was one of the oldest startups when it went public. It had raised billions and billions of dollars in private markets. And then you say that Eats is profitable. It's not. Maybe on an adjusted EBITDA basis, but barely so. And this company overall is still losing money. Well, I, I mean, they're not going to lose money this year, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at positive free cash flow. We're looking at, you know, about $700 million in terms of adjusted EBITDA. I think that their, their targets of $5 billion in adjusted EBITDA in 2024 is going to prove very conservative. Um, that represents only three, a 3% adjusted EBITDA margin on, on bookings. Look, this, this business went public too early from the standpoint of, what did the competitive environment look like, right? It was unsettled, their business was unsettled. Um, now they're gaining market share in, you know, in the US across their rides and their, and their eats business. Um, we still haven't fully recovered uh, post pandemic. Uh, and at the end of the day, this is an asset light business um, that operates in you know, a number one position in a lot of their markets and duopoly in, in other markets. Um, it's, it's a stock that has underperformed um, but it's a company that, you know, really has the right to, to regain the mantle of one of the, the, the true tech leaders. Interesting. Uh, asset light, you know, drivers are expensive, though, uh, and so is gasoline. And one thing we haven't mentioned today is the Instacart valuation down 40 percent from the prior. I just wonder, I mean, should we be worried more about the ride business or the, uh, the, the eats business? Look, I think all of this gets back to this rationalization that's happening. You know, capital is drying up, which is ultimately good for them. You know, this is a positive inflection point in their business. Um, and another thing that's super important about Uber is they have both the rides at each business. They can marry the two together and, and drive loyalty. Uh, customers of theirs that use both the rides in each business are about 16% of their users, but represent over 40% uh, of their bookings. They're rolling out Uber One. They already have 6 million subscribers, despite there not being, you know, much promotional activity around it. And so this is an opportunity for them to really uh, consolidate share. This is not a business, if there's anything that we've learned from looking at the financials of all these companies, this is not a business that can sustain many players. And everyone is sort of on board within the industry, you know, uh, all players that, 
you know, we need to start making money, right? So when you huh. think about inflection points, that's what's happening in the ride share and the meal delivery business. Here's, Jason, here's the, the problem for me though, is that I'm not sure if Uber went public too early or if its scale chasing thesis was just flawed from the beginning, if it was bound to hit a wall. And it, it seems like the narrative has kind of fundamentally changed if adding taxis to the platform is a strategy to lower prices, right? I mean, wasn't the whole scale chasing thesis of Uber supposed to be that by crowdsourcing this and adding technology to it, this was fundamentally cheaper than taxis, which is why they were pushing into areas where taxis were too cheap and, and scarce. How, how, what has shifted that adding taxis yeah. is now disruptive? It's a great question, John. So, so first of all, I, I, I don't think it's true that necessarily they were going to disrupt on price, and that was sort of the long-term strategy. Um, the long-term strategy is about generating new use cases, right? I mean, if you look at some of the taxi data in New York, um, Uber, Uber and Lyft together, like the rideshare players, are four to five times larger than the yellow taxi business. And this is true in a lot of markets. So they are enabling new use cases, right? Not necessarily disrupting the status quo. Um, I think bringing taxis onto their platform, you know, it's not really gonna move the needle that much, but it's important in this narrative about them creating a super app for transportation. You can have the option of using a taxi and the, the pricing is really not gonna be that different across taxi yeah. and, uh, and UberX. And when but, they talk but, about their bookings expectations for 2024, global taxi is, you know, not a huge part of that. It's just important to bringing transportation options onto the app. I don't know if that makes it a disruptor, though, Jason. A lot of the things you were describing was the status quo, and they've eliminated sort of the most disruptive parts of the business. But anyways, thank you for laying it out for us. We didn't even get to your other picks, so we'll have you back again. The other ones, by the way, were Zoom Info and Analog Devices. Uh, Jason, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Amazon shares up more than 6% this month, a bit flat to down slightly today. Still more than 10% off their highs. Find out why one top tech analyst is arguing shares are underappreciated and could head higher from here. That's on CNBC.com slash pro. Stay with us. Welcome back. EU lawmakers today adopting some landmark regulations to clamp down on the power and profits of some big tech companies. But will it matter? Markets largely shrugged off each incremental law and fine. Our Steve Kovac has an argument for why it does. Joins us now. Steve, earlier in the show, I said I'm skeptical for the past decade we've been talking about. Here's the big one coming regulation-wise. In my mind, the most effective global regulator in tech is Tim Cook. <laughs> These iOS changes uh, have had more of an impact on the ecosystem than anything any government has done. Am I, am I off base there? That is true. We've, we've seen it in the numbers with that IDFA change and the advertising and just really hit Meta's market cap like we saw earlier this year. But now the EU wants to regulate your regulator, John. They want to regulate Tim Cook's Apple. And I just got off a call with some EU officials about this. And look, to your point, the big tech companies are lobbying hard. These officials told me they called it, quote, intense lobbying efforts 
uh, from the tech companies to do whatever they can to water it down. And they have a lot of tools in their tool belt to do this, too. They can still um, issue rebuttals if they are designated a gatekeeper under this law. And they have several months to do it, even though this law is going to go into effect in October. It's going to take another six months on top of that before they can start applying these rules to the companies. And on top of that, the officials tell me it's going to take many more months for really just to start enforcing it. And let's just talk about enforcement really quick, John. And that's that's the price. You talked about those fines, slap on the wrist fines to you and me. It sounds like a hefty, hefty price to pay. Uh, now they're going to find them up to 10 percent of their global revenue. So in Apple's case, that's 30 plus billion dollars. And if they're a repeat offender to these regulations, it can go up to 20 percent of global revenue. Steve, I just wonder, in the broader picture, has something shifted or is something shifting here? The war in Ukraine underlining their strategic importance and many of the tech giants moving to suspend their operations there. And just, you know, regulators, especially here in the U.S., seem to have their eye these days more on areas like crypto. Yeah, but you also got to realize, dude, like a lot of these kind of rules are already being thrown around in, in our own Congress here in the United States. It's just as Neil, I was saying earlier in the show, like the EU is just kind of ahead of it and, and they did it uh, bef- without permission. So they're regulating the American companies before the uh, U.S. can do it itself. And these changes are so big and so broad that it, once this goes into effect, they're likely going to have to make the changes worldwide. Think back to four years ago when the GDPR privacy law came into effect. They had to make those privacy changes worldwide, not just geolocated in Europe, creating some kind of splinter net or something. Yeah, already getting some critical responses uh, to this from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We're going to see how this gets ironed out over time. Steve, thanks. Thanks. Steve Kovac. Uh, We did mention NEO yesterday, stock dropping today after beating sales estimates, but deliveries did fall short. Shares now down by more than a third since January. As we've gone negative, just slightly, 45.12, back in two. Some startup news this morning, and that is Instacart slashing its own valuation. Yesterday, we had the news that they were expanding 15-minute delivery. Just hours after that cross, the company said that it's cutting its valuation almost in half, down 40 percent from $39 billion to $24 billion. Two points here. One, the worry for investors. Instacart claims this is to help attract and retain talent, but how much is hurting morale here. Private companies are clearly being impacted by the pain in public markets. DoorDash is down 55% peak to trough. Bottom line is that this is a company that missed the IPO window, as we've said before, and there's a disconnect now between the valuation it uses for investors and the one that it is using for employees. Lastly, guys, we did ask CEO Fiji Simo this week directly on the record how a markdown was affecting the company, and she did not say that this was happening. And it's not a great sign when a company and a CEO tries to distract from the core issues and doesn't answer a question honestly. Guys, we've talked a lot about this missing the IPO window. This is, you know, an aged unicorn that has seen its value rise in the private markets and had a CEO transition right at the time some of the other gig economies were going public and getting, you know, good valuations and investors that understood their story. Instacart did not do that. Yeah. I mean, they might be in even more pain if they had gone public in that window and then were, were publicly down uh, from, from there. I mean, it might be more than 38 percent. But yeah, I mean, from, it's a shame. You don't want to come from Facebook, which rightly or wrongly has been under reputational scrutiny, to put it mildly, and then make the public question whether you can be trusted uh, by not being upfront. But, Carl, this seems to be a case 
where um, people are wanting to reprice and hey, nothing gets employees and prospective employees excited like growth. That's what it's all going to come down to, valuation, whatever, whatever number you want to pick or make up. It's, it's the growth that matters in the end. Yeah, uh, and, and what a commentary, both of your points about how hard it is to time exactly right when it's time to access the capital markets uh, in Uber's case and certainly Instacart's uh, some tough lessons in there. Uh, meantime, the streaming wars heating up this weekend at the Oscars. As you probably know, Apple, Netflix and more are going to face off. We're going to talk about it live from the red carpet with Julia in a minute. One more thing today, a streaming service could win Best Picture at the Oscars for the first time on Sunday. Netflix, Apple and more all facing off to win that coveted award. Our Julia Borston joins us with more live from the red carpet in Hollywood. We cannot wait for Sunday, JB. Well, it's a white plastic covered red carpet, Carl, as they get ready for the Oscars to return back here to the Dolby Theater. Now, this is really a moment for the Academy and movie stars to come out and promote movie going at a time when streaming is increasingly challenging the box office's power. Now, Netflix dominates this year's nominations with 27 to Disney's 24 and Warner Brothers 16. While younger streamers are also on the rise, Apple has six Oscar nominations and Amazon has four. Now, it's not just that Netflix is in the lead in terms of nominations, Sunday's show will actually be competing with Netflix's new season of Bridgerton, which is its most watched English language TV show. The second season starts streaming today. Now, Netflix, Apple and Amazon, they're increasingly challenging the studios on what used to be their home turf. Now, in the past year, the growing availability of theatrical films either simultaneously at home or after a short, whim, a short window in theaters has hurt theatrical ticket sales. This year's batch of the 10 Best Picture nominees grossed less than $600 million. The box office is down from $750 million in 2020 and $1.2 billion in 2019. Of course, those 2021 nominations were pretty much a wash. Now, this is all part of a broader decline in the number of movie tickets sold, a decline that started in 2002 with the dramatic dip, of course, in 2020 due to the pandemic. Now, it's not just the studios that have a lot at stake in the hope of a continued box office rebound this year. The theater chains are counting on the backlog of big budget films hitting theaters to draw audiences back to seats. Now, Comscore projects that this year's box office will be down somewhere between 20 percent and 35 percent from 2019 levels. So all the movie stars on stage here on Sunday night will be trying to remind people just how much they missed going out to the movies. Carl? Uh, jealous of your shot today, Julia. Uh, good stuff. Julia Borston ahead of the Oscars this weekend. Speaking of streaming and the battle for content, Showtime's Super Pumped, the battle for Uber, explores the meteoric rise and fall of founder uh, Travis Kalanick. We got the chance to sit down with showrunner and co-executive producer Beth Schachter for our digital interview series Binge. And we asked her why the corporate drama is so hot in Hollywood right now. I wonder, as a showrunner, how you view the corporate drama right now, because succession's a thing. Steve Jobs, Theranos has is, is made its way into the narrative thread. What is it about the corporation that, that lends itself to such great drama? Honestly, what we really love about it is they feel like modern-day kings. They feel like the monarchies in a Shakespearean play. The city has been taken! 
they have the same kind of power and ego. Oh. They make these incredible moves in their in their companies without naming names. I mean, a lot of this stuff that happens in these big corporations, especially with their personal lives and their scandals, isn't that the most fun stuff to write about? If you're super pumped for more, you can join us uh, on Twitter uh, and uh, or YouTube for a live stream of our full interview at 12.45 p.m. Eastern time after the show. And then the full thing, of course, on CNBC.com. Uh, interesting, John, they say art imitates life. And certainly uh, corporate dramas are making their way all across the media spectrum right now. Yeah, it almost makes the days of the Steve Jobs biopics and, and uh, the social network seem quaint, right, Dee? I mean, what, what would the Steve Jobs TV series look like? Yeah, it's a, I, I don't know. With the, with the hindsight now, it would be interesting. But, Carl, this is so much – they are so much fun to watch, especially here from Silicon Valley, you know, being watching these stories play out in real life and then seeing them on the screen. Really looking forward to your interview. Yeah, interesting. The one other point she made, which I thought was interesting, is as budgets may be getting a little more disciplined in terms of streaming in the years to come, uh, you might see showrunners who were, she argues, promoted maybe a little prematurely uh, start to lose their spot, and you're going to be left with the, the true uh, kings of showrunning in the years to come. But we'll see. Uh, certainly the need for content is not going anywhere. As for next week, guys, it's going to be a boatload of data from the jobs number on Friday to confidence, GDP. GDP, income and spending, uh, Chicago PMI, auto sales. It's going to be packed. So enjoy the weekend and rest up. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.